0: Time for Security Now. Steve Gibson's here. We've got lots of questions and answers. And, yes, more security breaches at Sony. Hard to believe. Let's talk about it next on Security Now. Netcasts you love.
1: From people you trust.
0: This is TWIT. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Winamp for Android. The ultimate media player for your desktop and Android device, featuring wireless sync. Download it free at winamp.com/android. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cachefly at cachefly.com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 302, recorded May 25th, 2011. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 118. Security Now is brought to you by squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to create a high-quality website or blog. For a free 14-day trial, go to squarespace.com/securitynow and be sure to check out their annual plans for savings of up to 20%. And by FreshBooks, the easy online invoicing service that gets you paid quickly and makes you look more professional. Get started with a free package right now at FreshBooks.com. It's time for Security Now, the show that protects you and your loved ones online, your privacy too, and here's the guy who does it all. From GRC.com, the great Steve Gibson. Hi, Steve.
1: (laughs) Hello, Leo. It's great to be with you again, as always. Let's get ready to secure yourself. What is this episode 302 oh my god I can't believe it you know you're just
0: one behind well I guess you're you're yeah you're just half a week behind twit because twit did
1: 302 on Sunday
0: I know that was your goal
1: and twit started before security now did you had them as your flagship podcast but since we keep counting ours and and you've had some twit vacations yeah but uh, uh, never again by the way
0: Lisa. Lisa has informed me that I may no longer miss any episodes of any show ever, ever again. <laughs> no, Twit especially is a show we don't want to miss. So you so unless something surprising happens, you're gonna be at parody forever. Sounds good. I think that's fine.
1: Yeah, I think that's fine. You caught up. So that was the main. Thing. We have our our regular roundup. This is a Q and A episode. Okay. Our one hundred eighteenth Q and A. We've got a roundup of news of the week and uh, some great comments and feedback from our listeners to to cover this week. And uh, and the last question is actually a lead in to next week's episode that is um, going to surprise everyone. Oh, really? Something new? Yeah. Something exciting? Something different? Something something we've long. Long-awaited, I would call it a. Actually, no, it's a. It's actually, I don't. It's probably nothing less than a breakthrough. Whoa! So, yeah. Whoa! Yeah, it's gonna. Right. It's gonna. It's gonna. Yeah. Whoa! <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey,
0: before we get to it, uh, I know I'm. I'm just looking at the notes. We've got security updates to talk about. There's a lot of security news. I'm, you know, Sony's been breached again. Oh,
1: they all just. <laughs> un- uh, they all just get off the internet. Well, now it's like um,
0: matter of pride, I'm sure, for hackers. It's like it's going to be really tough for them to get off this horse.
1: Well, we're going to talk about what happened because um, it's something we've talked about before, which is well, I don't, I I won't, I won't save it, uh, save it, negotiate with myself. Yeah, save save it. it. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, let's talk about uh, one of our great
0: sponsors, Squarespace. The secret behind exceptional websites. When you hear about all these breaches and problems, especially uh, on uh, you know, a lot of these attacks, for instance, the Mac Defender attack, come from poisoned websites, basically. People whose websites weren't secure, um, and uh, and and the bad guys got on the website, poisoned the Google image search from images from those hacked websites, and that's how they got on people's systems. So, you know, you got to really wonder, what do I need to do if I have a website to protect it? Well, I could tell you right now, one way to do it, is Squarespace.com, the secret behind exceptional websites. They do the hosting and do they do the software and they have a very firm commitment to security. One of the reasons people's sites get hacked is because they're not paying attention, they're not updating their MySQL database software, they're not updating their blogging software and so forth and these exploits come up. You don't have to worry about that with Squarespace. They handle all the updates. Everything's always up-to-date. So your site is secure. Your site is also responsive. They have very sophisticated uh, virtual server VLAN technology to keep your site online no matter what happens. They've got the best templates that give your site a unique look. You know, you can if you're a photographer, they've got photo galleries. If you have e-commerce, they've got that. They've got form building. They've got data collection. Intuitive editing. Fantastic stats. I can go on and on, but here's the deal. Best way to find out about Squarespace is to try Squarespace. Go to squarespace.com security now and click the big green try it free button. You won't need a credit card. You'll just need the name of your site, the password for your site. Pick a good one, huh? There's nothing they could do if you pick, you know, string cheese is your password. And your email, well, I actually that's not a bad one, but <laughs> your email address. <laughs> and your email address, just, you know, I used to use monkey. Not a good password. Nothing in the dictionary. And uh, create your website. It's that simple. Now, once you've got your site going, you can use every feature of Squarespace absolutely free for two weeks. It's a good way to kind of see what Squarespace is capable of. I love this uh, for designing sites for others, you know, for people, uh, you know, uh, who are um, friends, family members, businesses that don't have sites. It's one thing to say, hey, get a site. Another thing to say, hey, I made a site. Would you like to take a look? And you can do it in five minutes. It's really easy. Squarespace.com slash security now. Give it a try. We love them, and I know you'll love them, too. And we thank them so much for supporting Security Now. All right, Steve, time to
1: get to the security news. So um, Google has been updating Android. um, Actually, 99.7% of their devices, of the Android devices, Sans wrote... That Google is rolling out a fix for a vulnerability in the majority of Android phones that allows attackers to access and modify users' Google contacts and calendar when they are being accessed. And listen to this carefully because this is the this is important for us when they are being accessed over unsecured Wi-Fi networks. It's the Fire Sheep thing. Exactly. Now, didn't they fix it server side though uh, right away? Well. The, the, so the flaw, for, for those who are interested, the flaw affects versions 2.3.3 and earlier right. on the Android platform, which is virtually all, all but 0.3% of Android devices. Uh, and it requires no action from the users. It'll be pushed out automatically. Um, the 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 reason this caught my eye is that we've had a number of listeners who have essentially asked this question, which is, well if I'm using a smartphone which has both a 3G cellular connection or a Wi-Fi connection, but as is the case with smartphones, it will preferentially use Wi-Fi when it's available, what do we know about the security of, of the phone's use of Wi-Fi versus 3G? And, and this is a perfect example of of the concern that this that that this creates which is if you're you if you're not using your own Wi-Fi which we know would be secured then and and if you're using open Wi-Fi that is less secure from you know in the air near the phone than if you were using 3G which which while its while its cryptography is not uncrackable it's still very strong and much better than, as you say, the fire sheep stuff, which basically just takes advantage of the fact that there is, over an unencrypted connection, there is, is data moving between the phone and the access point, which can be sniffed and is in the clear. And this was happening to people who are using Android phones. So the question I have been that's been posed to me, I've seen it a number of times, is should I turn off my Wi-Fi when I'm, you know, when my phone would like to use it, but it's unsecured. And from a security standpoint, I would say yes. I would say unless you really need the bandwidth and, you know, if you're just doing things that can work over 3G, if the choice but is between that and an and open Wi-Fi, I would use the cellular connection because yeah. it at least has local encryption. Right. And so while Google has fixed this for contacts and calendar, we don't know what's going on with all those other apps that are loaded on the phone that might very well oh, have a good point. Yeah. fire yeah, fire sheepish problems. I mean it is like the it's Facebook app,
0: for instance, or something like Preci-
1: that. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah. All of the other apps that are doing communication, you know, you know, they're probably glad to be on Android, but security may well not be a priority for them. If and,
0: they offer SSL, as some do,
1: like Foursquare or whatever Twitter, do that do that, right? Oh, absolutely. So yeah. for example, in in the case of Facebook, if you're able to turn that on and keep it on, of course, we know the problem with Facebook is that is that there are still apps, Facebook apps, which don't support SSL, which which unfortunately require that you drop completely out of SSL rather than it being more granular. I'm hoping that Facebook is first going to make it more granular and then go the next step and just make it a requirement of apps to, to, to bring their security up, you know, if, if they want to play with, with you know, in Facebook's uh, world. Facebook's world. Yeah. Facebook. Um, and Adobe has once again updated Flash. I noted that they're no longer even talking about quarterly updates. They're not, <laughs> not even close. They've dropped that whole idea of, well, we're going to wait till June. Because, you know, fine, just give it up. Because um, they, they had a big problem, which was affecting all versions of Flash Player for Windows, Mac, Linux, and Solaris. Any versions 10.2.159.1 and earlier. And the same thing, uh, 154.28 for Chrome, one five seven point five one for android um so they re- and I just when I turned my win seven box on in order to fire up Skype for this conversation with you, Leo, uh, I got the notice, and what they were giving me was ten point three, so I imagine that's where they moved to, so you do want to make sure that you're using the latest since it's it's broad platform um and they so they've released patches for multiple security vulnerabilities affecting flash player and Adobe reported that malware in the wild is exploiting at least one of those known vulnerabilities, which is a memory corruption problem. And so, merely by enticing a target to view a maliciously crafted file, an attacker can exploit at least one of those vulnerabilities, well, actually all of those, but has been exploiting one of them uh, in order to execute arbitrary code. So. You no, know, and so I, I just see Adobe saying, "Well, we're just gonna we're gonna update our stuff, you know, as we need to, and not try to follow any schedule because that hasn't worked very well." Um, I did want to mention, since we're talking about Facebook, that they have added phone loop two-factor authentication. Some users have been a little put off by that because it requires giving Facebook your cell phone number, and people that have been concerned about Facebook's privacy practices. Are already sort of fed up with telling Facebook anything that they're worried Facebook may leak, but um, the two factor authentication approach seems to be a good one. Um, they probably use cookies because they identify machines that you have used before, so the idea is if you attempt to log on from a what in their jargon from a device that you that they have not seen you use before then and only then they'll require if you have it configured and it's not it's not automatically turned on so facebook users need to go and activate this in order to make it happen you activate it in in your security settings give them your cell phone number they will send you an authentication code which you then need to enter into your log on point on this device where you've never done it before then they stick a permanent cookie on that device, which authenticates it in the future, which is a really nice trade-off. It means you're not being harassed all the time. I mean, I, th- I think it's, it's you know, typical Facebook user friendly. I, I I got a tweet from someone saying, well, yeah, but why aren't they supporting Verisign or YubiKey or blah, blah, blah? It's like, well, you know, though, I would call that advanced, you know, one-time password, multi-factor authentication that's probably outside the scope of what most Facebook users can do. But for people who know that they're going to have a cell phone around, at least when they're using a new device, this is great because it means that the bad guys aren't going to be able to, to close that phone loop by providing the information. Also, you'll know if someone is trying to log on as you because your phone will send you a code that you're not expecting, which means, you know, if someone induced Facebook to, to send you this. So it's also sort of a cool notification that someone is trying to get into your account. So I, I think it's a good thing. It's certainly a step forward. And, and, you know, we could say long overdue, but, you know, it's great that it's here finally. And Kaspersky has found operating in Brazil, uh, and it's just sort of located there so far, another rootkit, another Windows rootkit, which boasts x64. That is 64-bit support. It's a variant of a prior rootkit known as the Banker Root Rootkit, root which targets online banking access credentials. Okay, now uh, this ties into a question la- that we're going to run across later on. Of course, I guess everything we talk about ties into everything else. But this thing leverages a hole in an obsolete version of Java. So we've talked about the problems with just pretty much having anything on your system that you 're not using, and i've in the past encouraged users if they don't know they need Java to remove it. Um, you know Sun is doing a, a as good a job as they can of keeping it current, but they 're only able to patch the things they know about, and it 's the things they don 't know about that that can catch us out so if in this case, users did, are not keeping their Java current, but something installed it on their Windows machines in the past, and they do whatever behavior it is, which wasn't made clear in Kaspersky's note, um, that you know they visit a website that, that leverages Java to install this. The first thing this thing does is it disables Windows User Account Control, UAC, because, you know, that just gets in its way. <laughs> And that lets it go about its business without being interrupted because that user account control, that's pesky, you know. You don't want that uh, if you're a malware. Then it installs bogus root certificates into the system and modifies the host's file so that accesses to popular banking websites are redirected to phishing sites operated by the criminals thanks to the fact that that this thing installs root certificates in the user's machine, no SSL warnings come up when the user is connected to the wrong system. The hosts file is like a DNS patch. Remember that uh, Windows systems, well, actually all Unix and and Internet-connected machines have a hosts file, as do Windows and Macs and so forth, um, where it looks first... Before it does any other DNS lookups, so they they put the domain names of banking sites, the legitimate domain names of banking sites, into the hosts file, associating them with the IP address of their malicious server. When the user puts correctly, like clicks on a cl- cl- clicks on a valid uh, shortcut that they had set up beforehand. I mean a, a true and correct URL. Their system looks at the hosts file for you know b of a or Brasilia whatever. Um, gets the wrong IP because it is no longer using DNS. The hosts file hack intercepts DNS. Tell it, it, their browser then connects to the malicious IP. Now that. Oh, over SSL. That's the other thing. They'll get all the the padlock is there. SSL is shown. I mean, everything about this looks legitimate, because there is the, the this rootkit has installed a bogus certificate, which the malicious server has has had its certificates signed by. So SSL proper URL in the browser. Nothing looks wrong about this, yet you are connected to a malicious site where you're then going to provide your logon credentials. And basically, that, that allows this rootkit to, to obtain your banking ac- access credentials by spoofing the appearance of the, the, the proper appearance of the web page. Nothing that you see looks wrong. Mm. Out of the order. Uh, out, out, out of order. I like it that and it's called the banker rootkit. <laughs> the banker rootkit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because it's going to suck out
0: all your money. Now, uh, uh, Bank of America has um, does a site key, for instance.
1: Yeah, and that this defeats that, that too. That won't help. Right, because what it does is it turns around and obtains the page. It. Exactly. That's
0: what the I page. always wondered about site key. Is like, how is this supposed to help? If I can see it, a bad guy can see it.
1: Yep, it, it this essentially is a man-in-the-middle attack where thanks to the fact that your syst- your local system has been so deeply compromised with DNS redirection thanks to the hosts file and bogus root certificates thanks to the fact that this rootkit was able to bypass UAC the other thing it does that I just you just sort of shake your head at is it needs in order to pull off some of this it needs to install a kernel driver well, we know that 64-bit systems are protected with PatchGuard right. that we talked about years ago when in, when when, when uh, Microsoft in, introduced this in Vista. So now it's ought to be very mature, and you know now we're at Windows 7, and PatchGuard is is one of the things it does is absolutely require that drivers be signed. Except, you know, Leo, that's inconvenient for developers. Yeah. Because when they're when they're writing drivers and compiling them, they don't want to have to keep signing them to test them, because that's pesky. Right. So, there's a test mode, which (laughs) bypasses that requirement. And it's accessible to
0: anybody, of course.
1: Of course. And the rootkit says, well... (laughs) I'm in test mode. (laughs) Having bypassed the user account control, because we don't want those pesky little pop-ups to warn the individual that we're modifying their system, we'll turn on test mode so that we don't have to bother you know, with that, with our, with having signed drivers because we don't have any. What a pain. Yeah. 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 So now if I have,
0: okay, one more question. This is, the chat room is now all at Twitter. (laughs) Uh, If, now I have on my Bank of America accounts uh, and my PayPal account and so forth, turned on that cell phone second factor authentication, right? So Hmm. I log in and it says, okay, send this to your cell phone and I enter it in. I guess because it's on my machine, it's still there. I mean, once I
1: get into B of A... I mean, they would be able to hijack that session, right. but they would not be able to hijack successive sessions. They'd s- have to do session. it each,
0: separately each time, of course. So,
1: I- so that log on, they would be able to hijack um, because, it, you know, the the bank would send you the authentication and you would go, oh, look, I mean, that would almost prove to you that you're talking to your bank because you, you would get the second factor or third factor, whatever factor it is, uh, challenge which you would respond to, typing it into the page, the bad guys would forward that because they're intercepting your traffic to the bank. The bank would be happy and you'd be able to log on. They could not, however, reuse your credentials in the future. So, uh, and if they were smart enough, and if they're not now, they will be, to, to recognize that that you're using um, a multi-factor authentication, they would do all their their dastardly work right then and there. And they have a connection with your bank. So as soon as you've given them uh, credentials access, right then they're able to do what they want to. And we have seen banking Trojans, which will empty, which transfer all of the money out of your account prior to you being able to complete the first transaction of the, the session. So the bad guys understand this, the moment they get access, they they turn around and send all your money off to Russia or wherever, and you look at your account, and it's empty. Jeez. So they don't even need to come back for, for you know, further access, although that's one of the things this thing apparently does acquire. Does, does it and impersonate
0: I mean, your computer if there's a cookie on my computer that says, um, me?
1: Um because that's another uh, thing
0: banks do Oh
1: absolutely because yeah. remember the cookie goes through the channel right. and there, and these guys get their they're monitoring the channel they have full man in the middle activity so so even if you if the bank said you have to do special things if you log in from a computer you haven't used before right. your your computer sends that to the bad guys who then turn around and send it on as part of you know just j- just echoing what your what what the traffic that your computer sends and so Here we're looking at the future. I mean, this is, and and it's a rootkit, meaning that what that driver has done that they've installed is it's patched the actual API, the, the, the low level operating system function, so that you can't see any of it. It's removed itself from the directory listings. And so, things that scan your system, which are, are unable to scan underneath the rootkit, which is an additional layer of difficulty, uh, and rootkits are becoming increasingly aware now of, of anti-malware and anti-rootkit technology, these things are becoming insidious. And, I mean, it's, this is a perfect example of once something like this gets on your system, you've pretty much lost your system. Sure. You, just, you just need to start over and what's the attack vector uh, java hmm. if you didn't have huh? if you i know <laughs> i know so you go to some site that that you know is is malicious or or that the bad guys have installed using for example an sql injection attack so you're just using you know you're you're at dsl reports because they had a problem recently with SQL injection. And you're just looking at a forum, and you trust DSL reports, because, you know, it's a good site. But they've got a problem with their server, their backend server technology. You, 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 you browse someone's posting, you're just looking at it in your browser, allows this, this exploit to leverage the fact that you've got a known problem in the version of Java on your system, and the jigs up. Oh, boy. Yeah. I mean, this is this sounds like science fiction, but this is what's happening now. Well, there you go. There you have it. <laughs> so I did want to follow up a little bit on... Uh, apparently, this is just in Brazil, so uh, it's not widespread yet. Kaspersky found it. They got a copy of it. They reverse engineered it. They figured out what it was doing so that I was able to tell our listeners. But, you know, yeah. there's just no better reason to keep yourself current patched with the things that we talk about and run with the minimum target profile, which frankly means not having JavaScript on because it's JavaScript that that then allows Java. JavaScript invokes Java in order to do, you know, Java applet sorts of things. So, I mean, you really, really want to just, where you can, um, minimize the profile that you're presenting to the target. Um, speaking of which, uh, there was a little bit more we talked about last week. The, the sort of the questionable conduct of of Apple support for their Apple Care customers. Now we've had a support document apparently leaked from Apple, which which directs Apple Care workers not to quote confirm or deny whether a user's Macintosh is infected and not to attempt to remove or uninstall any infections. At, at this point, and I, and I, I mean, I, I give Apple some leeway because frankly, it's, you know, they're late to the game in terms of how you handle these kinds of problems. They've had the 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 privilege, the benefit for so long of having a small enough market share that they just weren't a target for the attackers. And their prices were so high that you know, mom and dad weren't buying Macs for for junior hacker. You know, they were getting him a PC. And and as we've talked about before, hackers cannot develop attacks for machines they don't have. You can only develop attacks for the machines you own. And right. increasingly now, those are those are Macs. Um, Graham Cluley, who is uh, one of the chief technical guys at Sophos, who's by the way, as we know, a new parent. Um, Uh, He wrote that Mac's increased market share has effectively reached a tipping point where people are now getting hit with malware on their Macs. On the support forums, you'll see plenty of people who, who say they were just Googling around when a message popped up and convinced them they had a security problem. He says, in terms of Mac malware, Mac Defender is the biggest event to date. There were earlier viruses and malware, but this one is big. Wow. So, you know, the Mac grows up, unfortunately, uh, in a way that, you know, we've been discussing Windows uh, trials and travails for many years now.
0: And they're sitting ducks because, you know, Mac users haven't had to have a deal with this. And that's
1: a brilliant point. That, yes, we talked about that last week also. You're right, Leo. It's that, you know, the in general there isn't the level of on guardness right. that you know on the on on the side of mac users because as you say this hasn't been the way their world has been until now so yeah um, uh, and i was about to say that you know to to say again that that the problem is all of these systems are porous and then my eye falls on the next topic here under <laughs> attacks <laughs> under speaking of porous under attacks and breaches Is Sony's continuing trauma Um, now that the target has been painted on them uh, attackers are just been having a field day Uh, Sony uh, I wrote GMG but that's a GMC uh, in Greece um, and also some Asian sites have been attacked in the case of the the site in Greece Uh, Email address, usernames, passwords, phone numbers, personal information. Basically, it's another big mistake on Sony's part. And and this is sort of like, I I mean, I, I liken this to the problems that Adobe had with Flash. Is for the longest time, Adobe was just pouring technology out and nobody was trying to attack it. So Adobe didn't need to harden it against attack and what we've what we have as a consequence is a huge code base that has never been hardened and it's huge meaning that it's full of problems similarly here we have Sony someone says well you know why why are there so many problems with them well their problems have always been there but they never needed to harden themselves against attack and it's difficult to do i mean it's not the default case the default case is something works and so you put it online and i I mean we're talking about a world now that is different than it's going to be in a decade because the, the world certainly is quickly coming up to speed and frankly you know even in the united states congress is becoming increasingly concerned that that super popular sites like facebook that have you know tens hundreds of millions of users are are increasingly posing a threat to their own users so um nasa similarly confirmed that an ftp server at their goddard flight center had been breached uh in this last week uh and the same person a, a romanian hacker known as Tincode t-i-n-k-o-d-e also breached the security at a european space agency network last april last month, uh, he refused requests to discuss the details of the network vulnerability he exploited in the NASA intrusion, but he said, oh, and he said he had not been contacted yet by NASA, uh, and he said that he had obtained confidential satellite data from that Goddard Space Flight Center FTP server. So, you know, our systems, unfortunately, are are, un, are not secure enough to withstand Really strong scrutiny when bad guys decide that's where they want to focus. In miscellaneous uh, notes, I wanted to mention that I've been getting great feedback from um, our recommendation of Mark Rosanovich's Zero Day novel. Lots of people have purchased it. Um, I got feedback quickly from people who bought the ebook version on the Kindle saying that they were only into the first chapter and already they couldn't put it down. So um, I just wanted to, uh, to thank them for letting me know and to remind people that it's, it's a good book. Um, <laughs> and in our unintended consequences uh, sideline I uh, don't know no, no, if you saw this, Leo, but it turns out that Bitcoin miners that is those who run <clears throat> high-power machines cranking out Not like you. A, no, like me trying to mint bitcoins, I turned mine off because I figured I just got lucky making 50 bitcoins in less than a week. Well, how that do you get a... bitcoins if you don't make them? Um, oh, you're able to trade them. You're able to buy and sell right. goods using bitcoin as a current uh, as as a currency. Right. But it turns out that initially these were just rumors on some IRC chats, but there have since been confirmation that that bitcoin miners have been subject, in Canada at least, to some house searches. Um, The Canadian town of Mission, B.C., has a bylaw on its books that allows the town's public safety inspection team to search people's homes for what's called marijuana grow-ups if they use more than 93 kilowatt hours of electricity per day. So, so what's happening is apparently, I guess a marijuana grow up is you buy a whole huge like rooms full of grow lights, like right. fluorescent grow lights right. in order to like have this incredibly bright uh, UV rich environment to grow your marijuana plants. And it's detectable by the fact that you're you have a sudden spike in electricity usage. Unfortunately, that's the same characteristic as Bitcoin miners. Yeah, but
0: you're not going to use 93 kilowatt hours a day, are you?
1: Apparently, yes. I I read some of the some of the dialogue. People from must people. be having like
0: 10 servers running. No, they have a room full. Oh, please! Of servers. These
1: people have gone nuts. You know how much you're here. spending to make Bitcoin, <laughs> and that's just it. Now, it was the case when we first talked about this that there was no economic that 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 people were arguing uh, that there was a power consumption cost disincentive but leo Dole. i looked today at the leading exchange that is exchanging bitcoin yeah. it is north of $7 hovering around 750 us dollars per bitcoin so you made when 350 I- bucks like that when you and I talked about it, when we first talked about this, um, we were—it was like an event when it broke, it, when it reached parity with the U.S. dollar. Right. When one Bitcoin was one U.S. dollar, we're now at seven fifty. Wow! So, so that tilts that again tilts the 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 game in favor. Bitcoin mining now one of the other thing that's happened though remember that the one of the cool things about the Bitcoin network is that it is entirely self-regulating as this distributed peer-to-peer network sees that the rate of bitcoins being minted by these crazy people with you know houses full of servers and probably air conditioning or at least their windows open and fans um, it automatically increases the 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 level of difficulty of the problem that must be solved that is this hashing problem that must be solved in order to continuously regulate the rate at which new bitcoins are being minted so so what this what this ultimately means is that that it's going to be more difficult to mint bitcoins and we know that the whole process is asymptotic. It's it's slowing down and leveling off over time, so that there is only ever going to be, I think it's 21 million. I don't remember the number now, but some fixed number of bitcoins ever minted, like within X number of years. Again, I forgot a lot of these details. I knew To them avoid all. inflation. It's, to to exactly, you you cannot in you cannot inflate this. There is no way to to create more bitcoins. Than the technology was originally set up to create now I have to mention also here that I got a ton of tweets from our listeners who apparently picked up Jason Calacanis oh yeah is quoted bait. that Bitcoin is the worst idea ever and I've never watched Jason Calacanis so I thought what 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 is he saying well I still can't say that I have watched him. I tried.
0: <laughs> it's just link bait. It doesn't even make any sense. I don't he's even understand not, what he's saying.
1: He's not very impressive. He yeah. doesn't. He's not a techno guy much. Um, I don't know. I, 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 I. To all the people who tweeted me, you know, I'll say that I wasn't endorsing Bitcoin. I was this. You know, we were security. Now we were being what this podcast is, which is. How does this stuff work? What is the crypto sound? Does it make sense? Can it be hacked? You know, and the answer is this thing is really cool. It is a robust cyber currency that, as far as I can see, was absolutely done right. So that's all I'm saying. I, I know Jason must be grumbling that it can be used for terrorists to exchange value, and I mean, who knows what it I is? He was figured out
0: what it was. I think it's just pure link bait. Uh, Rob Tursick responded, I think, with a. A pretty good uh, rebuttal.
1: I don't think it is And a and frankly, I did watch those guys. He, he had two Bitcoin uh, gurus on, and they were really good, articulate, and nice, and and, uh, and so you know, if anyone's in- interested, if they, if you want to find that, I don't know even where it was. I must have just put put in Jason Calacanis Bitcoin or something. Yeah, you could find it that way. You yeah. find it on YouTube. Um, so anyway, I don't know what he's talking about, but you know, I'm not evaluating the morality of. Of currency. I mean, the fact is, yes, you can use it for laundering, money laundering. That's it's not the money's fault; it's what you do with it. You know, in the same way that you can use technology, you know, crypto for to hide secrets that our state, you know, that our state should be have access to, but the bad guys can use crypto. It's not crypto's fault; it's the technology. So, it's just a non-governmental
0: currency. That's it.
1: Yes, in a nutshell. Yes. And, you know, governments have a way of stomping those out. Oh, yeah. They don't, they're not happy with those. So in the really annoying overreach department, we have the fact that the RIAA, our, our friends who, you know, in the entertainment industry, who I was reminded, have basically sued every technological advance that's, that there's ever been. I mean, they actually sued the, the, the people who made player pianos in the beginning because they felt that it was copyright infringement to have a player piano and of course they famously tried to prevent the VCR from from being made available to consumers. So everything that that you know has come out which has ended up benefiting them tremendously, they tried to keep from happening. Now, they have filed a legal action against box.net which is one of the leading cloud data storage providers. They are suing the cloud to get access to what users are storing in the cloud to see whether it violates copyrights so well i'm you know i want to have this case this is good we should get this court case yes um... this uh... there's an article i'm reading from it Um. in tech dirt uh, the RIAA RIA really doesn't just really just doesn't know when to give up attacking and to start innovating. Its latest legal move is to file for a subpoena to get information from cloud storage provider Box.net to see if some people are using the service to store and share unauthorized music. Um, and uh, then I went back to the the uh, source article that that uh, TechDirt came from. Um, And this was uh, in uh, Hollywood Reporter reported that the Recording Industry Association of America fresh off of a proclaimed milestone in securing their $105 million settlement uh, against LimeWire has now set its sights on the burgeoning cloud computing world. On Wednesday, the RIAA filed legal action against Box.net, a service that purports to let its users share, manage and access business content. The trade group seeks to investigate a couple of the company's users believed to be using the service to infringe sound recordings. And this goes on. I have the links in our, our notes. So I just wanted to point out that that's um, another reason why uh, the the concept of absolutely never putting anything in the cloud that you don't encrypt first one way or another what I called pre-egression encryption, um, really has got to be the way we deal with cloud computing. We still have the problem, of course, of, 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 with cloud computing, of loss of access. So, I mean, there are, there are problems with putting things in the cloud. But, it really, you know, people talk about security of the cloud all the time. And to my way of thinking, that's easily solved. I mean, you have to deliberately do it. You have to know what technology you're using, and whether in fact it is doing pre egression encryption or not. That is, is it leaving your system encrypted with a key that the provider does not have, so that it doesn't matter whether the RIAA or anybody else s- serves them with a subpoena, or you know law enforcement or anybody, they can say, well, here's the data, but we don't have the key. Or we, we, we used our key and it still looks like gibberish. So, good luck to you. <laughs> Ugh. Anyway. Uh, oh, and from the Twitterverse, uh, a listener, Michael Leonard in San Diego, he said, Just listen to SN. Great show. I think I have a better name for you P I E, pre internet encryption. Instead of P E E. Yeah, which, you know, is urination, unfortunately. <laughs> Pie. So. I like, I like pie, I think. And it's a little broader. And besides egression, you know, it's like, okay, a lot of people don't know what that means, you know, to egress. I like so pie. He, I do too. Pi, pre-internet encryption. It's easier, friendlier. And so that's the acronym. Tastier. <laughs> They're definitely tastier. And I did want to share a nice testimonial. Uh, from Mark Wright in Oregon, a listener and Spinrite user. He said, after having Spinrite for almost a year now and using it on many of my systems, I finally have a wonderful testimonial. I frequently use Spinrite whenever I have strange problems with my systems. But until now, I have never actually seen it declare that it had fixed anything. Even though numerous times Spinrite reported no errors... The systems would then behave themselves from that point on, which of course is the case. We've talked about that before. Spinrite often fixes things working with the drive, but doesn't report an error because it's reporting what it left behind, not what it encountered. And so, you know, it is fixing things. It just there's no way really for me to say we fixed something because sort of the nature of the way it interacts with with the drive. Anyway, he says, A couple of months ago, I gave one of my older PCs to a coworker who couldn't afford to buy one. They called last week with that dreaded question, My PC isn't working. Can you fix it? Well, the problem they were having was that Microsoft was now sure that they were using pirated Windows software, and they were getting all the warning pop-ups in XP for that. On top of it, they couldn't use the web because IE kept hanging and crashing. Since it was an older box, I decided to to run Spinrite and just let it run overnight. Well, the next morning, 12 hours later, it was only 5% completed and still working on two bad sectors it had found. I noticed in the data it was working on that it was Microsoft's and wondered if the failure had munged a file related to software validation. I decided to just let it run its course. About 36 hours later, Spinrite had finished testing the drive with a total of about 16 blocks marked bad. When I booted the system, or when I booted into the system, I was able to launch IE now and ran Windows Update. After installing all the patches and the software validation tool, Lo and behold, the errors were all gone. I got the window message that Microsoft had recertified the box and all was well with the world again. Thank you, SpinWright, for saving me the trouble of backing up data and reinstalling everything. Hopefully, the drive will last long enough now for them to afford a new one. Great product, Mark in Oregon. And thank you, Mark Wright. I really appreciate you sharing that with our listeners.
0: We uh, we're going to come back and answer questions. I I, Steve, you prepared some fascinating questions to talk about some good ones. Before we do that, though, I'd like to stick in a little advertisement for our good friends at FreshBooks. I used FreshBooks for a long time. It was Amber Macarthur, in fact, who introduced me to FreshBooks. It's an invoicing system online, and and one of the reasons we were very interested at first is because it was the first really truly Web 2.0 website we'd ever seen. I mean, just friendly, easy to use. Truly interactive. Their tagline, love invoicing, is absolutely the case. You could take a look by going to freshbooks.com. You can even try it because it's free for the first three clients. What does freshbooks.com do for you? Well, if you do hours, for instance, they have an iPhone app and a web app that will track your hours and automatically do the invoicing. You get you paid faster because every invoice you send via email has a pay me button that uh, allows your clients to. Pay you via credit card or one of 11 different online payment services like PayPal and Authorize.net. That's nice. Automatic late payment reminders can be set. You can even, I think this is really cool, automatically invoice and automatically charge your clients if your clients agree to it. They did a survey a couple of years ago and they found that users of FreshBooks tend to get paid about two weeks faster than they did before. And that's because FreshBooks really speeds this the system. It, it streamlines your invoicing. Who likes doing invoicing? Nobody does. But FreshBooks makes it easy, professional looking. You've got your logo on there and the invoice. It doesn't you know look like a self-generated Microsoft Word document. It looks like a pro accounting system. It is. That's why. They'll even print and mail invoices for you too for an additional fee. Try FreshBooks today. Go to freshbooks.com and uh, it's free for the first three clients which is a great way to try it. I think you're going to like it well enough that you're probably going to want to uh, use it for all your invoicing. Of course if you're a small business like I was, three was plenty. It even handled the uh, Canadian currency because I was invoicing uh, Canada as well as uh, U.S. clients, So that was really great. FreshBooks.com joined two million users who started and uh, used FreshBooks since 2004. And by the way, FreshBooks continues to give away birthday cakes to uh, one of its new users every week. So if you sign up this week, you could be in the drawing for those delicious Caroline's birthday cakes we had when the other day it was great. Fresh Books. Somebody else did. I looked at it. Tasted a little, you know, a little fingertip. FreshBooks.com. Try it today. Steve Gibson. GRC.com. Time for questions and answers. Are you ready? You betcha. Well, of course you are.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Why wouldn't you be ready? The question is: Is Leo ready? Let me get the document up here, and uh, and I can answer the questions. Where are they? It's, it says they're in there. It seems to end at the spin
1: right thing. Is there a? Separate- oh, it's. The, it, it, I'm sorry, Leo. There, there's two documents. Oh, well, there you go. They're a separate PDF. Of course, they are.
0: Oh, there it is. <laughs> All right, I'm ready. <laughs> sorry about that, Steve. Uh, Sometimes I'm a little slow. Question uh, number one comes to us from a listener and programmer. In fact, I know his name, Jim Heislip. He rants against Steve's claim. Steve, in episode 256 Q&A 115, your very passionate claim that it is possible to have bug-free software is a major slap in the face to those of us who build software for a living. Well, I'm going to let you defend yourself, Steve, but I, I, I think that Steve has been very clear about this, and it's not quite as you say. Sir, you have stained the honor of all professional programmers, and I will have satisfaction. As the injured party, I hereby challenge you to a thumb-wrestling duel to be held at a place in time that is mutually convenient. All joking aside, though, you exclaimed, come on, it's math. No, it's not. Good programming is communication, communicating your intentions to the compiler and, more importantly, to other programmers in such a way that there can be no confusion. That's why, as you pointed out, and you are very much justified, ran against JavaScript. Every browser interpreted a particular code snippet in a different way. Communication is a human activity, and no matter how carefully you choose your words, someone will interpret what you say in a different manner. I can't count the number of times I've had QA testers file bug reports only to tell them, "No, that's how it's supposed to work." Look at this section of the design document. And of course, people make mistakes too. And in the complex, add in the complexities of multi-threaded and event-driven programs. You're now talking about programs whose complexity is several orders of magnitude greater than most programs could be written in Assembler. At that point, proving that a program is bug-free is an almost impossible task. You said, by definition, it's possible for us to have an absolutely bug-free environment and not a bug in any apps, and I want to underscore this, but it'll never happen. You said that. Well, it is also possible win the lottery five times in a row, but that'll never happen. Just to be clear, I'm not saying because we can't, Write bug free code, we should just shrug our shoulders and say, oh, well, or that we should expect such basic mistakes as not sanitizing inputs, allowing buffer overruns, and so on. Good software developers should, nay, must always do their best to write code that is as bug free as they know how to make it. And yes, Steve, I'm afraid that means there will always be bugs and people will always make mistakes like shutting off a firewall. Well, I, you know, in your defense, you've always said that. That's exactly yeah. what you've always said.
1: Yeah. Um, I, uh, um, I. <laughs> um, first of all, you know I also build software for a living. You know a little bit about this. Yeah, and I and he he, he says that adding uh, the complexities of multi-threaded and event-driven programs, and you're now talking about programs whose complexity is several orders of magnitude greater than most programs that could be written in assembler. Well, not so. I write all of my programs <laughs> in assembler, and they're all multi-threaded and they're all event-driven. Right so uh, i think what he's saying there is that if you were an assembler then you're at the bare metal so you're not depending upon for example the whims of the compiler or the javascript interpreter um, and communication i mean i certainly agree with him that communication is one of the problems one of the things i like for example about the way the internet's rfc's the, the requests for comment have been structured is they make a very good point of of in, and they always use all capitals they say shall do this must do this may do this shall not may not must not you know they're extremely careful when they're writing the specifications about what behavior they want so certainly communicating communication is part of it yet i will at the same time i mean i I, I will stand by my statement which is that there isn't anything analog from the beginning of the way our computers work and so while yes it's not going to be the case that massively complex systems written by when you aggregate all the people involved tens of thousands of people speaking different languages thinking different things, meaning different things, and then having it all come together that it's going to work. In fact, when you phrase it that way, it's amazing these things even boot. Um, still, from a theoretical standpoint, and that this is really what I was saying in episode 256, is that it can be perfect. It absolutely can be perfect. Will it be? No. Can it be? Absolutely. There's nothing preventing our operating systems and our programming our programs from being perfect yeah they're not going to be but
0: yeah i mean I, you know, in your defense you've always, you've always said that we will never get rid of bugs right so there's a difference between the making a, a, an assertion that in that theoretically it is possible as with anything like this to make it perfect but practically it's impossible correct would that be a fair way to describe what you what you believe Yes,
1: yes, practically it's. Well, it's practically it's never going to happen. Right. It's not impossible. It's never going to happen. Right. There's I, a I love, <laughs> I, I, I love, Donald Knuth's book on. Um, is it Lex? Um, no. Yeah. It's his no public, Tech. Tech. It's called T E X. Te- yeah. Tex. Uh, he, he pronounces he, it Tech for just to be additionally obscure. <laughs> and in 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 the preface. He says, I believe on, and he quotes a date, the last bug <laughs> in this program was found. <laughs> and and I think he says, and the person who found it got $2.56. And I will double the r- reward <laughs> for every successive bug that's found, Ooh. except I don't think there are any more. Wow, that's cool. And I love that. No, I mean, and again, I mean, this is Donald. I mean, this is the guy. I mean, he's an artist of software. That's the name of his book. And tech is massive. I mean, it is a serious piece of code. And it may very well be perfect. So so no one's found another bug? No. There probably aren't any. Wow. I mean, he probably did find them all because he wrote it in a language that he knew, well, actually in a language that he invented, and wrote it very carefully, and, and I mean, that's just the way he is. Now, is that a commercial practicality? No. Yeah. I mean, he would have been fired by any employer, right. but, you know, he's the person we all bow to as the as the master of the, of the art and science of computer programming, you know, not the economics, not the practical reality, but, boy, you know, he knows what he's doing, and... You know, he wrote a perfect program. OK. <laughs> one, there's one. There's been one.
0: Pat Cho in Sacramento, California, wonders about disabling browser plugins. Steve, while I would prefer not to have Java and other now, now we agree. Java uh, and other plugins installed on my computer, I do need them for a few sites. Firefox and most other browsers give you the option to disable them, which I do, unless I need them for a specific web page am I gaining any additional security by doing this or am I just wasting my time because the malware can somehow access the needed DLL files even if they aren't enabled because they exist on the computer if this does provide some additional security I hope someone develops an extension to make it easier to turn the plugins off and on thanks for the great show and thanks for SpinRight. I would add it's probably also programmatically possible to tell the browser to turn them back on anyway
1: Maybe. Yeah, I don't know whether you could do that, at least in Firefox. So, okay, Pat's question is a good one. As we just saw, a you know we, we dragged ourselves over the horrible details of a new rootkit, which installs itself thanks to having an obsolete version of Java installed on the machine. Um, and as I mentioned, it is scripting that enables the Java applet to be loaded and run, just as it's scripting that enables Flash applets to load and run. So it is definitely the case that browsers have control over what technologies, what add-on technologies, plug-in technologies they're hosting and running within their windows. And that it would be possible to do something more granular than NoScript where, for example, when you load a page, up pops a, like a menu of the technologies that this page needs in order to go. And there would be a, a you know a field for Java and one for Flash and one for, for JavaScript and you know uh, uh, PDF rendering and you know uh, all the different sorts of plugins that that you have to enhance your browsing experience. And then you could decide which of those you know based on this site which of those you want to turn on. That's sort of what we do with no script in a less granular fashion because without scripting, pretty much nothing has a chance to get going because scripting is the way everything runs. So it is, though, the case that when you turn scripting on, you are then allowing anything the script wants to do on that domain to uh, to do whatever it wants to. I like the fact that no script does give you granularity. So you can turn scripting on for that for that first-party site, but then it shows you a list of all the other third-party contributors to that page and allows you to decide whether you want them on or not. And frankly, I typically leave them off. I look at them and they're typically, you know, third-party advertising or tracking, you know, overtly marketing, tracking-related things. It's like, ah, let's see if the site works if I only enable first-party scripting. Uh, actually, that'd be sort of a nice feature to have uh, for the browser, um, sort yeah, of no uh, by default. Yeah. Um, and I know that Chrome does allow you to disable JavaScript and then enable it selectively. It'll give you a warning if, this, if the page has scripting and you can then turn it on for that page, though it does turn on for all other parties to that page as well. So it gives you some of the the, the, the feel of what NoScript does um, uh, over over on the Firefox side. So, yeah, it's we don't have anything like that. I could foresee a version of NoScript in the future that gives us more, more, you know, sort of easy pop-up granularity control over these plugins because they are now, they're the source of the problems that we have out on the net. It's leveraging mistakes and errors in these plugins, whether it's the PDF viewer, the Java uh, renderer, the fire the JavaScript itself, typically we're seeing less problems with scripting, and it seems to be moving now to the second level targets, which are those plugins that the scripting runs. So yeah, I think it's a great idea, Pat. Question
0: three comes from Corey in New York City and his subject is police state. Mm. Police state. <laughs> Here's <laughs> Steve. First of all, thanks for your great work on security. Now now on to business. I came across an interestingly disturbing article on Ars Technica yesterday. It's actually now a little while ago. Basically, they describe the technology the police can and often do use to grab data from cell phones when they pull someone over. They could do it with a physical connection or even Bluetooth. I was wondering what, if anything, could be done about this. Would encrypting your phone help? Certainly a TrueCrypt-style encryption would mean nothing useful can be gotten, but are such things readily available or computationally feasible on phones? What about older phones or early generation smartphones? Uh, like the 3G or the first Droid or the G1. Surely they would take the biggest computational hit for encryption. Is there anything else that could be done? I'm sick and tired of governments assuming that wanting privacy means we're hiding something. Can't wait to hear your thoughts and thanks for all your work. And it includes a picture... Uh, on here. Actually, so I, did
1: a, uh, did. I did a little research.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, you see that thing sitting there, this little handheld deal with a little yeah. cord going over to the phone. And in the, in the second picture over on the right is a, is a bank of all the different connectors which are available for that thing. <laughs> so get a load of this. While, while I'm reading this, Leo, uh, Google um, Celebrite, C-E-L-L-E-B-R-I-T-E, space u f e d again that's c-e-l-l-e-b-r-i-t-e space u f e d so an article in newspaper.com michigan uh, for michigan says police search cell phones during traffic stops the aclu seeks information on michigan program that allows cops to download information from smartphones belonging to stopped motorists. The Michigan State Police have a high-tech mobile forensics device that can be used to extract information from cell phones belonging to motorists stopped for minor traffic violations. The American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU of Michigan, last Wednesday demanded that state officials stop stonewalling Freedom of Information requests for information on the program. ACLU learned that the police had acquired the cell phone scanning devices, and in August of 2008, filed an official request for records on the program. That is the ACLU filed a request, including logs of how the devices were used. The state police responded by saying they would provide the information only in return for a payment of 544,000 $680. $680. Why? The ACLU found the charge outrageous, and yeah, no kidding. Um okay, so I thought what is going on with this thing? Um this is so uh this device is called the Celebrate UFED and I went I, I tracked it down, went to their site this, uh, and I'm looking at a picture with this array of cords, and, and they're the, the Celebrite UFED system, real-time mobile forensics. This is a handheld thing, says the Celebrite UFED forensic system is the ultimate standalone mobile forensic device ready for use out in the field or in the lab. The UFED system extracts vital information from 95% of all cellular phones on the market today, including smartphones and PDA devices, Palm OS, Microsoft, Blackberry, Symbian, iPhone, and Google Android. Simple to use. Even in the field with no PC required, the UFED can easily store hundreds of phone books and content items onto an SD card or USB flash drive. Celebrite UFED supports all known cellular device interfaces, including serial, USB, infrared, and Bluetooth. Extractions can then be brought back to the forensic lab for review and verification using the reporting slash analysis tool. Celebrate. get this, works exclusively with most major carriers worldwide, including Verizon Wireless, AT&T, Sprint slash Nextel, T-Mobile, Rogers Wireless Canada, Orange France, and Telestra Australia, as well as 140 others. Get this, this ensures that future devices are supported prior to retail launch Hmm. and then under secure extraction and complete content they say the ufed allows you to extract a wide variety of data types including contacts sms text messages deleted text messages call history received dialed and missed audio video pictures and images ringtones and phone details including the ESN and the phone number and so forth. So essentially <laughs> what we've got is a, a device designed to hook up to phones, which apparently by design gets in underneath any password protection or encryption that the phones offer because this has been set up in advance with the cell phone providers. To, to make sure this is going to be compatible with every connector shape known um, so that anyone who gets your, so, your, your cell phone is able to essentially suck it dry. And the problem is this is being done by just simple traffic stops in Michigan.
0: Well, that's the issue. I mean, I don't think they have probable cause to search your cell phone for a traffic stop. Exactly. Uh. But, you know, this is uh, similar to a device that uh, you, they'll use at uh, the phone store to copy your phone numbers off your phone and put it on
1: uh another With, your permission. With, yeah, your, with per- your permission. with your permission, of course. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, as I understand it, the, the police demand the cell phone of someone who they've pulled over and then take it back to their car. Problem promise they can do and it so
0: quickly you might not even know it's happened. Right. Well, I'm, uh, yeah. let's see a court case based on that evidence. Then we'll see what happens. Yeah, we'll see how it develops. <clears throat> I mean, it's clearly an illegal search and seizure, but anyway, I'm no I'm no attorney. Martin <laughs> Rojas, I mean, you got to have probable cause. You can't just take somebody's cell phone, search it on a fishing expedition. That's clearly illegal. That's why the ACLU
1: Well, the, the problem is we are certainly seeing an erosion of our civil c- civil liberties yeah. as a consequence of the Patriot Act that right. was just recently renewed for another 4 years without any debate right. in Congress. Right.
0: Yeah. Martin Rojas, Atlanta, Georgia wants to set up a secure email community. Steve, I love the show and I've been listening since episode three zero. I have to say it's made me appreciate what I was learning at my computer science classes and how it applied to the real world. I love hearing your explanations and propeller hat episodes. But recently, my friends and myself have been trying to figure out how to encrypt email while communicating within our group. I immediately thought of public key encryption, but I have no idea of, how, of any software or how I'd go about setting this up for our group. I know most time topics are theoretical, but I think a lot of people would love a practical way to apply encryption to our mail. Love the show. Please keep up the awesome job you and Leo do with the podcast. And Leo, I turn this one over to you. <laughs> yes, because I do it. Because you um, do
1: it and I never have.
0: Yeah. there's You know, there's a very easy way. There's a service called Hushmail that uh, Phil Zimmerman uh, of PGP fame worked with. They use PGP's technology in the background. Uh, They allow you to create uh, encrypted mail to and from friends or anybody else. It's just like Gmail or any other service, but encryption is one of the features. Now, that may make you a little nervous because you'd have to trust that they weren't, in fact, storing the the key and all that. Uh, So uh, many of us just put encryption on our uh, our own system uh, most email programs allow you to do this. Outlook does, uh, Apple's Mail does, uh, Thunderbird does. There, there are kind of two ways to do it. One is with PGP, pretty good privacy. So if you search for PGP or the one I use, which is GNU Privacy Guard or GNU GP, um, you'll find implementations for many email programs. That's one way to do it. Um, the other way to, and by the way, uh, both these systems will provide you with digital signing as well as encryption, which means. You don't necessarily have to encrypt the mail, but it will validate that the mail came from you and no one else, and i that's what I use. If you get email from me, it's always signed. Uh, and the other way to sign and or encrypt is with certificates, um, and uh, you, know, you can go to, there are a lot of places you can buy certificates from all the usual authorities. Email certificates are usually cheap. Uh, I got a free one recently. It used to be Thought would do this, and I can't remember who does the free uh, email c- certificates. But uh, if you search around, you can find those. Those are a little bit easier because you install the certificate into your email program and it handles all the details kind of transparently. Um, I don't know if Gmail or Yahoo Mail or those other webmails have their own encryption systems. They might, but uh, I would suggest Hushmail if you want to do it with web bail, mail. And I would suggest uh, either uh, GNU Privacy Guard or a certificate based system. SMIME is what it's called, Secure MIME. Uh, right. If you want to do it on uh, email, did I get that right, Steve? You did, <laughs> and I do it, and I like it um, mostly because I think if we all encrypt, then they'll, then then that uh, just kind of takes away that thing. Will only crooks encrypt, right? the The implication is yep. if you didn't have anything to hide, you you wouldn't good, hide it. Good point. So yes. I hide everything. Apparently, there are browser plugins that will allow you to use PGP with uh, web-based mail, so that's worth looking into. Question, oh, I guess it's back to me. (laughs) Question five from Tim Roslin in St. Louis, Missouri. He wonders about optimum password brute force strategies. Steve, I'm listening to Security Now thanks to a friend of mine, Andy Gibson. Good job, Andy. I started from the beginning, and I'm almost up to episode 100. And I'm excited to find out what the surprise was you promised for that milestone. I don't even remember anymore. That was 200 episodes ago. Every once in a while, uh, I'll sprinkle in a more recent episode. Just finished listening to 297. I'm writing this shortly after hearing you say that in terms of password or passphrase vulnerability, the attacker has no knowledge of your character scheme. With Leo adding, it might even be foolish for the attacker to make assumptions about it. We talked about, you know... T- tricks you might use that make it easier for you to remember. Uh, theoretically would make it easier to crack if the attacker knew the trick you were using. Right. Um, he does say, but they have to start somewhere. And that got me wondering if brute force attacks were tiered. T-I-E-R-E-D. In other words, does a typical brute force attack in the, in, the, in fact, start with the assumption of a simple password, perhaps with a limited character set, all lowercase alpha, and then, Tier up to include uppercase, then numerical, ultimately special characters. The bottom line is, if so, wouldn't you be most secure by only picking from the special character set? As that, oh, this is interesting. As that would be the tail end of any brute force attempts, thereby making the attacker's job more difficult by simply uh, choosing exclusively from the last upper tier. P.S. You can't very well listen to 100 episodes of Security Now without eventually buying a copy of Spinrite. So one of those yabba-dabba-doos was me. No problem with any of my drives, but it's nice to have a bit level confirmation. They're still in good sa- good shape. Grateful for your and Leo Leo's contributions to the field, Tim Roslin, St. Louis. We're grateful you listened, Tim.
1: Yeah, and it's a great question. Um, if if I were trying to design a brute force a password brute forcing technology, and and we can assume that other attackers understand this problem domain as well as I do. That's exactly how I would tackle the problem. I would, you know, the first thing you would do is use the readily available dictionaries of most common passwords. Uh, the things that most, you know, people most often do. For example, ABC123 is like right up at the top of the list. Um, and then after doing that, you'd run through actual dictionary you know like the dictionary in the language of the the person whose password you're trying to crack and see if they just use a dictionary word and and maybe you'd capitalize the first letter uh, or maybe not but you know try it both ways but for example you wouldn't try all caps because that's harder to type in sort of less likely that that's what they did so so again you as Tim suggests you you would sort of ramp up your attack, trying successively less likely things, um, not overlapping uh, the later tests with the earlier ones, that is skipping those because you already, you would have tried them earlier. But, but eventually, you know, you'd get all the way out to like the kind of password that, you know, we've talked about often, which just looks like gibberish. Um, but, you know, most people to this day aren't using passwords like that. They're using something much simpler, which is unfortunately, and they're using things that are that are, that are too simple. But it certainly is the case, exactly as Tim suggests, that a the wise attacker would not just start, you know, A B C D E, and then A A B, A B A C A D A E and so forth, and go through all of them. Instead, they'd 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 strategize their attack to minimize, to, 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 to maximize the chance of hitting on the the, the solution in the minimum time. That's, that's how I would imagine those attacks would be designed and I have seen, you know, literature that indicates that's what the bad guys are doing.
0: But, just as a bad guy uh, can't guess your method, it's <laughs> we can't guess or guarantee their method. Correct. So, you, you, I mean, making assumptions about the method is, uh, is works, but only occasionally. And if you make the wrong assumption, you, you, you know, it's going to be worse. Well,
1: and it's inherent in this that we're talking about a large population of users. That is, you know, the world's uh, users probably are using, you know, dictionary-oriented poor passwords. Right. Not, so just, you go not, after them. not the security now, right. listeners. Right. Uh, you know, I, I think
0: why reduce entropy by limiting it to a certain character set? Just throw all the entropy you can at it. Question six, Levi D. Smith in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, wants his WebGL. This afternoon, I listened to Security Now 300. I was concerned about the comments about WebGL. WebGL is a powerful technology which provides a standard method for rendering 3D applications in web browsers. I agree there are security flaws in the initial implementations of the standard. But to blackball the entire WebGL API is a security risk is unfair. The focus should be placed on fixing the security vulnerabilities of the browser implementations instead of rejecting the WebGL library in its entirety. This is actually a debate Steve and I have because basically Steve doesn't like a web page to have any any programmability (laughs) at all. right? That's right, it's dangerous. It's dangerous inherently. So plain text is always best from Steve's point of view but we live in a world
1: where we're trying to do more and more with our web pages. right? So my answer to Levi is, yes, by all means, we want the implementations of WebGL to get better and stronger with time. Um, My job here with the podcast is to keep our listeners aware of the threats that are lurking. And from a standard security standpoint, it is always the case to operate with the minimum attack surface. That is the fewest number of things that can be attacked. So I'm not, I I don't think I've ever gone to a WebGL-based site. There are, you know, demo sites and demo pages. It's like, ooh, look at that. That's in my browser. It's like, okay. But, you know, the sites I go to don't use WebGL. So today, while it's a known attack vector, while we're working on solidifying it and and shoring it up, I'm disabling it. I'm turning it off. And if I go to a site, that will say, oh, you apparently don't have a WebGL enabled browser. It's like, oh, that's my clue, if I care, to turn WebGL on selectively for that site. I mean, it's like a firewall. Firewalls deliberately restrict the incoming ports. They don't have, we know that there's six 65,535 possible ports. But the whole, the whole reason we have a firewall is to hugely constrict the, the, the flow of communications to only the things that we know we want. And so, you know, like, so disabling WebGL is like using a firewall. It's like saying, I don't, th- I don't know that I need this. Or it's like disabling Java or JavaScript. I don't know that I need this. And now I know... It's a potential vulnerability. It's just crazy not to disable it until it stops being a vulnerability, or maybe ever, you know, and turning it on more if WebGL catches on. Maybe it'll always be just sort of a curio and, and never be a major factor in the industry, in which case I'll probably just leave it off. All right. So there. So there.
0: <laughs> I have a feeling, you know, because it's HTML5, we're, we're looking at this as a standard. But we'll see. Uh question. I think it's H I think it's part of HTML5. Maybe not. I might be wrong on that. Question seven. An anonymous listener writes Hi Steve. I just finished listening to number two nine nine, went straight to your uh, page, the, the JavaScript demo page, grc.com slash r ampersand d slash js.htm. Of course I use no script. The so best no JavaScript warning ever. Oh, I haven't seen it. What did you do? What
1: did you do? Uh, I, should, I should turn off JavaScript and go there. So I just wanted, I got a kick out of his mentioning that because I'd forgotten that I had fun with the, with the warning that the page will give you or the explanation if you go to either of my JavaScript pages uh, with JavaScript disabled, which, of course, I would expect our listeners to do, much as this anonymous listener did. And so I just give people a fun message. Uh, So I thought I would share that with our listeners who may be curious now. (laughs) It's grc.com slash r ampersand d slash js dot htm.
0: Trying to figure out how to turn off JavaScript without no script in Chrome. (laughs) Uh, eh, Oh, well, I'll just have to leave that as an exercise for the viewer. Yeah. 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 Uh, Question eight. Aaron Aaron in Bend, Oregon, uh, wonders about USB prophylactics. That's something new. Stephen Leo, I'm sitting here with my thumb drive stuck deeply inside a friend's PC, <laughs> an infected PC, trying various tools to clean it, including the new MS safety scanner you mentioned a couple of episodes ago. When I am done and want to use this thumb drive again, what is the safest way to use it in my own computer again after being in an infested PC? Is it enough to have auto-run turned off on my PC? Then I'd format and copy the programs I use back on it. I did some googling tonight and found a couple of free programs that claim to make your USB flash read-only. Oh, that's interesting. I also see you could buy flash drives with a write-protect switch like an old floppy disk, but I, I don't want to buy another flash drive. When I have so many lying around, and I, I didn't find any software from a source I recognized and trusted. I also thought of formatting while on the infected PC after I'm done, but I don't trust malware not to hop, hop back on after it's formatted and before I can yank it out. As always, thank you for the podcast, Aaron. Boy, that's a good point. If
1: you stick something into an infected PC, uh, it might get infected before you could take it out. It is a fantastic point, and I, I love the question, and it raises... You know, I mean, it is a great question. Now, it may we we know that malware jumps onto thumb drives. That's how Stuxnet got itself all over the place, and it's a common thing to do because it's sort of you know thumb drives are sort of today's version of of the floppy that was how the original viruses spread around among PCs back in the old DOS days. And thinking about this, the only thing I could suggest that is safe. And he's absolutely right. I mean, if I, I mean, I I would have exactly his reaction. If I was using a thumb drive in a known infected machine, that thumb drive is absolutely suspect from now on. I mean, you abs, I mean, I'm, I'd be tempted just never to use it again. Just, you know, drop it off in the next garbage can. Um, because I mean, it's, it's scary, but well, and because to really fix it, you have to jump through some hoops. I would say boot from one of the boot f- CDs, you know, like an Ubuntu Linux distro CD, in order, uh, and, instead of booting from your main regular bootable system, he asks, you know, is it enough to have Auto Run turned off? And we know it's not. Because unfortunately, there are, there are bugs in the display of the contents which allow malware to gain control just just by by like like viewing the contents in explorer is all it takes and that's one of the that's one of the things that stuxnet used and there are still some unknown exploits that have never been made public that were being leveraged by stuxnet so we still don't know what those are or if they've been fixed so I just don't think it's safe. Unfortunately, we've got too much automation in our systems to allow a, a, a USB drive to be, to be plugged in safely. So I would say um, boot from a boot CD without your hard drives connected. That is so that there is nothing writable on this machine except the, except the thumb drive. And that's why I'm saying it's sort of impractical, but I mean, frankly, that's what I would do. I would I would disconnect my hard drives, boot a, a, a bootable CD, and then use that to reformat the and I you know, don't just erase the files because you could yeah, you could have hidden files, do a full format of that drive in order to clean it. Or what's easier? I mean, they're so inexpensive these days. I, I just you know, I just may, maybe consider this one your malware fixer thumb drive, you know, <laughs> put it in a red box with the skull and crossbones on it, and, you know, use it the next time there's a problem. <laughs> oh, no, because then you'll re-
0: then you infect the next machine. Uh, yeah, no, that's a
1: problem, too. What I mean, you it, do... It, really, it any, really is a good question. Anybody who does this does not use a
0: thumb drive. They use a CD or a DVD with all the tools on it. I presume the reason he's bringing a thumb drive is he's got his tools on it. Just uh, burn a point. CD. Simply
1: burn it to a CD. Yeah. It just Much better solution. Yeah, I
0: mean, I admittedly a DVD is only four point seven gigs, but I think that's enough.
1: Oh, I would imagine. I mean, how many yeah,
0: tools do you have? But if yep. if you need two, burn two or three, now if it's a netbook and there's no drive, yeah, I guess you. Yeah, I guess I mean it, it's conceivable there's reasons, but boy, it hits a good point. I tell you, you I mean you can't trust it now.
1: One, yeah, once it's been in a bad drive, I'm no. not so happy
0: with it. Yeah. Frank Varela in Boyle Heights, California wants more on what well, we we're going to call it Pi. Yep. We, we call it, it was P, pre-egression encryption. Now it's pre-internet encryption. Long-time listener, yep. always fascinated with the topics. You brought up the term P, Pi. Could you talk a little more about what is
1: pre-internet egression? Well, I'm not going to spend much time on this because we have already talked about it. I I pulled all these questions together before I put the top of the show oh. stuff together, oh, okay. which brought me into this discussion. So, I'm sure all of our listeners understand and I'll just make sure that Frank does that this concept is using technology and for example, Jungle Disk is is an example of of Pi, pie, P I E pre-internet encryption where Although it's not the default, you have to manually establish your own encryption key, for example, in Jungle Disc. And there are some others that people have been tweeting me about that I'm going to try to get to make time to look at in order to, to vet them. Because I'm not really happy with the direction Jungle Disc has taken. It was once free, now it's not. Um, it's still inexpensive for, for in-the-cloud backup. And yeah, I think if you use their Rackspace version and you use your own key, then you have a Pi-compatible, a pre-internet encryption system. But the idea is many systems like Dropbox are very user-friendly, and they say, oh, we encrypt. You know, we, we, we use SSL-256 encryption so that all of your data is safe as it's coming to us. The problem is they encrypt it and then they decrypt it at the other end. So they're storing it in, or or they have it at least in an unencrypted state. In the case of Dropbox, they then would encrypt it for storage, but they encrypted it for storage. You know, they have the key that was used. The only way any of this stuff is safe is if the you you do the encryption before it goes out on the wire and that key never leaves your control. In which case we're using the cloud as a big opaque storage container in the sky. We still have the problem that it could go offline, but it, but, and, and so that's inconvenient, but at least we have zeroed the problem that the of security, this stuff is absolutely secure because it was encrypted before it left us and encryption these days is trivial. We all, we, it, it's available, it's, in, it's free, not even inexpensive. So it does require that you carefully choose and vet the technology you're using. This is, I ought to mention, this is why I did the same thing with LastPass. I'm using LastPass. I understand how it works and it is Pi compatible. Pre-internet encryption, it encrypts everything that we entrust to LastPass. They never get the key, which is why, you know, it it qualifies. Um, Dropbox didn't, and they got caught because people now understand the Dropbox employees or Dropbox when served with a a subpoena could decrypt the data that is in our Dropbox. And so that's not PI-compatible. There are systems that are... But And I believe in the future, as we become more security aware, it'll be something that's made more clear. It's very frustrating when I, when I look at something that's got a beautiful-looking website. Oh, clearly they spend a lot of money on the graphics, but they don't tell me anything about how the thing works. In which case, I, you know, I can't say, <laughs> oh, this looks great. It's, you know, it's like, yeah, look at the pretty buttons. Wow.
0: Most people judge the quality of software by the quality of the UI, and that's why. Yeah. Don't you think? Yeah. Our last question, number 10, comes from Kevin Young or Yang, in uh, Los Angeles. He asks about password strength and dish- dictionary attacks. I'm a fan of security now. I had a question about password strength and dictionary attacks. I know from your past advice that any normal word used as a password can easily be cracked in a dictionary attack. Does the same hold true for a dictionary word? with alphanumeric additions mixed in, such as E, capital X, A, M, P, L, E, L E zero five percent Also, what about longer passwords containing a mix of dictionary words with numbers and symbols? For example, if my 20-plus character password was something like, and he gives a, you know, I can't remember, but it replaces one space with a tilde, another with an asterisk, and uses a back tick instead of an apostrophe and an exclamation at the end, and then adds brackets and number eight. <laughs> would it still be vulnerable to a dictionary attack or a similar brute force hacking? I guess what he's saying is I can see a dictionary word in there, but it's, but it's mixed up. It's muddled up with other stuff. Correct. I'm trying to stank, strike a balance between password strength and memorability and being able to include words or phrases within the mix of alphanumeric characters would make things easier for me. I don't want to make it easier for hackers, too, though. Especially if I use it for something like a LastPass master password. Thanks for any advice
1: you and Leo might have. Now, Leo... You would think that we had beaten this thing to death. (laughs) It's a good question. (laughs) It is a good question. Which we've answered. (laughs) And I stunned myself Sunday. Uh Uh-oh, what happened? With a breakthrough in... In password technology. A breakthrough in password technology. I, I, I know how loony that sounds. Again, you'd think we had, we. I mean, in the 302 episodes, uh, we would have, I mean, on our first episodes way back, one, two, and three, we're on passwords. And we've mentioned passwords over and over and over because, like it or not, they're the way we all authenticate still to this day the majority of us on the Internet. It's we probably may the have... most important security thing we deal with day in, day out. Yes, it is. Yeah. And so uh, earlier this year, I came up with an idea. And I mentioned a couple weeks ago the passcode designer that I was working on. It's why I, I taught myself JavaScript. And you can see it, Leo, if you go to grc.com slash designer all run together, it's passcode, not password, so passcode designer, you can tap on an .htm if you want, if you don't, my server will, and it's a little machine that I built over the last month or so, um, very cute and graphical, um, you can click on things, you can type in the field, you can play with it, and, and it's got a big obsolete stamp on the front of it. Yes. Not only is it obsolete, but GRC's perfect passwords are obsolete. What? Everything is obsolete. <laughs> what? I'm not kidding you. I. This is unbelievable what I came up with, and I've, I've been just, like, reeling from it for a couple of days. Now, when I use my own passwords, I think, boy, is this stupid. i got to get this changed to the new scheme. You have Next a week, new password scheme. A whole new – I mean, this is unbelievable. Next week – I'm going to, I'm going to, we're going to change the whole balance between strength and memorability in a way that means we can now type in, we'll we'll be able to enter our Wi-Fi router passwords. They will be as strong as if you used a perfect password from GRC, but it's vastly simpler. Oh, thank you. It's is this. So this is just something you were noodling around and it came to you in a flash? Well, what happened was, and this is what, this is the nature of research, is... I I built this machine, this passcode designer. And and the concept behind it, I I thought, okay, well, we know that, you know, like if you use all lowercase, that's obviously weak. Um, And so what that says is that, you know, having other classes of symbols like numbers or special characters is important. And so I thought, hey, how about if we treated it like a state machine where we have four different classes? We have lowercase alpha, uppercase alpha. We have symbols and we have numbers and you want to encourage the user to in their password have transitions between those classes. So on that concept, I built this passcode designer with the goal being to create maximum entropy, minimum length, maximum strength passcodes. And when I got all done and it's finished, it's there working, something was, I realized when I got finished, it was wrong. And I, I got stalled for a couple of weeks because I couldn't figure out what was wrong. But my intuition was like itching me saying, OK, this isn't right. And I showed it to the, the folks in the news group. And, you know, a lot of them, you know, we went back and forth and tried to figure out, you know, they didn't quite understand what I meant. I explained it. And so I, I ended up figuring out what was confusing me. And then on Sunday, yeah, I got it and it's like oh my god this changes everything so nothing I've, ever said about pa- next <laughs> nothing I've ever said about passwords is right i mean nothing everyone anyone thinks i have got some news i know it sounds like i've lost my mind but i think i can uh, i'm working on a new page now which is going to lay it all out and explain it and give people something to play with so they can test passwords using this new scheme and when you hear it you're going to go Oh, my God. Why didn't anyone ever think about this before? Oh, my God. <laughs> so, episode 303, next what a week. Tease. <laughs> I love it. Next but week. I'm not kidding. It's, we're going to change our password. Everyone here who is listening to this is going to change their passwords. I can Because I've got something far, far better. And this is based because, you know, we've been kind of having this conversation
0: all along, but and then it was stimulated by that uh, article about why... Uh, uh, something is uh, joy is fun or something was better password than X, Y, Z, Z, Z. And then, and and so we've been doing this thinking lately.
1: We only oh, so, talked about entropy. Yeah. And I mean, we've got, yeah. we and the, the perfect paper passwords concept is still a good one. The one-time pad, because that's right. different. The, the one-time tokens. But GRC's perfect passwords that 3,500 <laughs> people a day go to, it's just junk. Well, Don't I, need that I anymore. I presume you will be replacing
0: it uh, as soon as we
1: do the show. Uh, I'm, uh, it's sad because I really liked it, but it's stupid. <laughs> you put a lot of work wait, into wait, it. Wait, I got something so much better. Steve, you're the greatest.
0: Steve Gibson is at GRC.com. That's the place to go if you want to know more about right and all of those other great uh, applications, uh, many of which he gives away. Actually, spinright's the only one he charges for. GRC, the Gibson Research Corporation. If you have a question, we're going to do it. We do Q and A episodes every other episode. Go to grc slash feedback. You'll find all of the Security Now episodes there in uh, 16 kilobit versions for the bandwidth impaired. Plus, Steve pays to get transcriptions made, so you can read along, which is great. It also makes it easier to search uh, for the content you're looking for. That's all at grc dot com. Steve's on Twitter at sggrc. And um, every week we do this show Wednesdays at 1, I'm sorry, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, uh, 1800 UTC at live.twit.tv. So join us live or subscribe at twit.tv slash SN, and you can get it every week. You wouldn't want to miss one, that's for sure. Not next not week, Not next anyway. week, not number 303. <laughs> Somebody's in the chat room, uh, Beatmaster, saying, could you sell that uh, idea to Sony, please? <laughs> All right, we'll talk again next time on Security Now. Bye-bye, Steve. Thanks, Leo. We're
1: going to give it away next week.
0: Yay, it's free. Security Now.